This is the 966, episode 21. Blackjack, Richard Mabruk. Yes, shukran. Joining us today, a very special guest, David DeRoche, associate professor, professor at the National Defense University and a non-resident fellow, Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. David has had a distinguished career in the Army as well as with the Department of Defense as well. Dave, so glad to have you join us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Today, we'll be taking advantage of Dave's expertise and talking about Saudi defense issues and U.S.-Saudi security topics. But before we take the plunge this week, thanks to all those of you who have uh, subscribed wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Also, shout out to our YouTube fam. What up, YouTube fam? Um, Okay, let's get going. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Outside of the views, just rocketing. Well done, the 966. Um, My one big thing. Uh, Just four years after removal of the kingdom's 35-year-old ban on movie theaters, Saudi Arabia's 2021 theater box office revenues hit $238 million, making it the top market in West Asia for the second straight year. Uh, For reference, that $238 million was close to 100% higher than 2020, which was $122 million, which is not surprising given the pandemic year. But it's also more than $100 million more than UAE's box office gross in 2021. 340 new feature films were released in Saudi cinemas in 2021, again, up from 222 in 2020. The surge in Saudi box office grosses uh, coincides with the growth of multiplexes from 33 locations at the beginning of the year, 2021, to 53 by December. Uh, Saudi Arabia now has 430 screens. Uh, Saudi-owned movie cinemas operates the highest number of local cinemas with 21. Uh, Dubai-based Vox has 15. U.S. theater chain AMC has 10. We, we did a segment on them and, and their challenges in getting rolling. Lebanon's Empire Cinema with five and Mexican-owned Sinopolis, Sinopolis, uh has two multiplexes. Awesome. As you know, I don't really like movie theaters. Um, this is even before <laughs> the pandemic, so, um, but that's really cool. Dave, do you, feel free to jump in here. Well, you know, this is really just a a symptom of what's going on. I mean, five years ago, a bunch of if you had a bunch of Westerners in the kingdom, uh, you know, somebody would come in and say, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. What? I drove through Burger King and a Saudi was working there, Um, you know, and and it was like they saw a unicorn walking down the street. And now, um, you know, the country has transformed in ways that is profound for those of us who go back and forth to the kingdom and it's largely unknown in the west uh, but it really is a profound transformation and this growth of cinemas is is you know a pretty visible attribute of that yeah it's you you put your finger on it you know people hear about it but they don't believe it i was laughing with lucian uh, that when i first went to the saudi in the 80s you know, the entertainment was was sharing um, you know banned vhs tapes yeah. you know that was, you know, if you got a good one, it was, it was awesome. And, and uh, when my friends would come here, Saudi friends would come here, part of the process of that they're in for two weeks or a week and a half or whatever, visiting a son or a daughter or whatever, they say, you leave me alone for about four days because I want to go to the movie theater. I want to go see some things that I can't see back home. Yeah, it's a different world for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and, and the, the cultural aspect of it is becoming so intertwined where, you know, you, you see um, – uh, people who, uh, you know, wear t-shirts with, um, uh, professional wrestlers on them and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's profound and it's, and it's so rapid 
and, and I fear because of COVID, a lot of people are really missing out on this. They're going to see a, a great step. It's been sort of a gradual thing. But when people start going back to the kingdom in numbers, there's going to be a lot of people really amazed. We'll see a lot of articles. Yeah. You know, it's also worthwhile to note that um, the top grossing film was Egyptian comedy. Um, so it's not all just, you know, U.S. blockbusters. And, and uh, uh, actually two of the top five were Egyptian comedies. Spider-Man was the biggest, um, you know, U.S. production to make it. Um, and that came in at two. But of the top ten, there's a, there's a number of, um, you know, Middle East, Arab-based, Arab you know, productions, which is, um, I guess, you know, it's not surprising given there. But these, you know, increasingly, and we've covered the Red Sea Film Festival and, and, and a number of other things, you'll see more and more of that, where you're going to see more regional and local um, productions making it to the screen. That's great. Definitely. Okay, uh, Richard, my one big thing this week, I'll just jump right into it. Um, you know I can't resist this topic, Saudi Golf. There's a new <laughs> podcast out from Golf Digest that really does a great job at giving the history of Greg Norman's pursuit to shake up the game. Um, as you both know, Saudi Arabia announced last fall it would be partnering up with Greg Norman, the shark, for a $200 million venture called Live Golf Investments to increase the popularity of the game outside the U.S. and Europe. Um, Greg Norman is Liv's chief executive officer. Um, as you both might know, this is the latest Saudi-backed effort. Um, it isn't Norman's first pony ride at the county fair. Uh, Norman <laughs> tried unsuccessfully to start a competing tour in the 90s, and a, the, the podcast really captures why Norman was doing it then and how a few folks in the PGA successfully torpedoed the plans. It's just like a really interesting look at what was going on then and what, what Greg Norman is doing now. The podcast also features an interview with Norman himself. It sort of changed the way how I'm thinking about this, mostly in that I believe Norman in that he's doing this to grow the game of golf and solve some long-standing problems with the PGA. Uh, for example, Norman believes that the PGA's insistence on not having appearance fees and tightly regulating where players can play is stunting the growth of the sport. Uh, the PGA decided to kick the can down the road this spring and grant waivers to a host of the sport's biggest names to play in the upcoming Saudi International. So we'll have to wait to see, um, way to break the popcorn out um, on the PGA versus Saudi League. Um, sort of head-to-head -head battle coming up. Anyway, highly suggest that you check it out. It's on golfdigest.com, but we also have it on our website, sustg.com. Um, Dave, do you play golf? Not well. I play about twice a year, um, and usually I like to play, you know, it's it's more you know more of the Churchillian a good walk spoiled but uh, <laughs> I was thinking about getting into golf serious but the problem is it's so time consuming and expensive mm -hmm. so I decided to smoke crack instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I I love golf I really would like to play more and I and, and I'm trying to play more but I'm not very good at it and it just occurs to me I might be better at smoking crack so Dave let's, let's <laughs> <laughs> it's cheaper. <laughs> You know um, <clears throat> that uh, that episode was good, and and, and Greg Norman, I agree with what you said, Lucian. You know, but Greg Norman still holds a grudge. We know he does, and it's been interesting to watch this whole process where uh, you know the Saudis talked about uh, doing this this Super League, and then um, went ahead and invested in the Asian uh, Asian League, and it's. Um, and then the PGA partnering with the, the now the, the Dubai Ports League, but it was a Europe, European circuit, in order to really compete and and meet some of these 
desires of their top flight players. So they're all sort of meeting in the middle. It's all coming up. And, and the Saudi vision in this, this super league that was envisioned and has sort of come to the fore a couple of times is, is clearly going to win the day, in my opinion. Because we're going to have more of these very large, high-purse events with, you know, just the top performers who are getting appearance fees, which is sort of the format that everyone's talking about. So yeah. it's, it's, it's been an interesting process to see it go. Yeah. It's kind of like, I, I, I think what we're going to see is golf is going to become sort of like the F1. But if you had alternate circuits of F1 where, um, you know, people come to, uh, you know, Manama and other places, uh, but they don't do it for free. And I think there's right. a recognition, the Saudis recognize that uh, they're going to have to have a sort of a top down approach uh, for a while, at least before the game takes root. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 encouraging. I mean, um, uh, you know, sport, yeah, pe people talk about all the industrial goals for Vision 2030. But one of them is that every Saudi is going to exercise on a regular basis. You know, people neglect that, that social aspect of Vision 2030. And, you know, anything that promotes sport is 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 a good thing. Um, and yeah, you know, I wish I golfed more and I wish I golfed better. Uh, you know, I've, I've only, I've only played three holes in the kingdom, so I look forward to doing it again. Dave, you're clearly a regular listener of the 966 because we often talk about the, um, the quality of life plank of mm -hmm. the vision 2030, that yeah. uh, quality of life pillar and that, uh, participation and how, uh, these, uh, sports, uh, initiatives that uh, you know get the front pages and that sort of thing. We're talking all the way from Newcastle and soccer to golf to Formula One. You know they 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 are criticized for being sports washing for sports washing, but the, how it ties back into uh, real goals back home in terms of participation and health and and finding outlets for their youth. Uh, and I will say this: if if the you know if the golf if the golf what you know the Asian Tour or even the PGA could have a season exciting as this last F1 season, which was yeah. insanely exciting, then uh, that's must-see TV. That would really build their, their base. Yeah, no, it's good. You know, people, people tend to regard sports and politics and social development as separate, but they really are um, fundamentally entwined. You know, you look at the battle for racial integration in the United States, and there's a reason why, you know, Jackie Robinson's number is retired at every professional baseball team. And then conversely, on the negative side, if you look at um, the birth of modern Quebec independence, it goes back to the Montreal Canadiens. Um, <laughs> riots after uh, uh, Rocket Richard was unjustly suspended for an alleged dirty hit, uh, you know, that led to a um, uh, a riot in Montreal in the 50s. And, and most Canadian historians, and I realize we're delving into a very, very obscure area when you talk about Excellent. anything with Canada being significant, but the, the um, political ferment that led to modern Quebec secessionism, you know, martial law in, in uh, Montreal in the 70s, they, they stem that all from that hockey match. So it can be significant, and I think the kingdom's wise to focus on it. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting too. Norman's whole point about the appearance fees thing is like, if you're starting up a new league and you're starting up a new tournament and it's in a place where golf typically is not terribly popular or there really isn't a lot large fan base for the sport, yeah. you need to pay people to show up. And part of the reason why you do that is because that then gets people to attend the events. It gets, you know, sponsors and interest. It sort of generates its own money back when you're doing that. It's just a good way to get things started. So for Saudi Arabia or Indonesia or any of these other countries to do this is like, you know, it's an important way for them to get things going. So 
it's interesting to see the players sort of come back and forth across the spectrum on this. Some people saying, look, I don't want to do politics. I don't care. I'm going to play in Saudi Arabia and take the money. And others are saying, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know uh, about where the money's coming from. I, I'm, I'm worried about this and that. It's like th the players are independent contractors. They can sort of do what they want. And that's the, that's the essence of the battle right now. And that's sort of why I thought that was interesting with that podcast, just talking about that angle of it. Because I think that is Greg yeah. Norman's like number one thing that he's working on. It was interesting yeah. back in the day when he first mooted this in the mid-90s. Uh, it was basically kiboshed by Arnold Palmer. Yeah. So, you, know, uh, you, know, we, you know, Jack and, and uh, Gary Player and I were the threesome, and, and we didn't. Everyone invited us to go out on our own and do our own little bit, and we didn't because we didn't think it would be good for the game. The game has changed. Yeah. Um, and I actually, but I actually think there's, we're going to be coming to a head at some point because the PGA is going to have to either a, a cave or they're going to have to try and draw a line in the sand, and then and then these independent contractors, and it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, basically, what you're describing is not too different from the PGA Seniors Tour, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, that is, you know, not a hyper competitive league, and it's fan driven, and there's appearance fees and stuff like that. So, you know, we already have sort of a precedent there within the domestic context. So I don't think it'd be that hard to export the model. And, and clearly it, it meshes nicely with what the kingdom is seeking to do for uh, both enhancing its its stage, giving it a reputation as a place to actually go to for something other than business. And yeah, I think, you know, what yeah. the heck? I mean, more golf is better. I, you know, you know, there have been wars over soccer games, but there's never been a war over <laughs> golf. <laughs> well, it, it, back to Saudi, I mean, Aramco is, has, is very much involved in the Ladies European Tour. And, mm -hmm. and so they're, they're trying to build the sport across the, you know, the genders in Saudi Arabia. And, uh, yeah. and it's not just men. Uh, so it, it's, and, you know, and the, back to the PGA, they just put in this player impact program, which is a $40 million pool. Mm -hmm. which Phil Mickelson got $8 million for this year, you know, Jeez. for for basically what, because it's, again, it's in response to what the, the, the these leagues, the competitive leagues are saying is you have to pay your marquee players. And so they said, all right, here's a 40 million pot and we'll have some, some quotient that lets us know who has you know, done the most to promote the game of golf. And, and again, so Phil, just for being Phil, you know, got 5% of that 40 million. To add to is, I'm sure is, I'm sure it was a really scraggly year. He didn't make enough money, so another eight million. <laughs> you know, my mother lives in La Jolla in San Diego, and Phil Mickelson owns all the Five Guys. In San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can tell you, whatever, whatever, um, my, my mom gives me like a, uh, and she she golfs occasionally. Uh, she plays Tory Pines and all that. Uh, wow. Whenever whenever she gives me, well, it's a municipal golf course in San Diego. If you live in San Diego, it's affordable. And whenever she gives me clothes, I can always tell that basically the, the picture she has in her mind's eye is Phil Mickelson. <laughs> she wants me to look like Phil Mickelson. <laughs> well, so, well, look. So I and, resent him. <laughs> and, well, until his recent diet, and he, he looked like he frequented those five guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Not, not just the owner, but a customer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ooh. I stand by my product. Yeah, yeah. Dave, I have just one more follow-up question. Where did you play your three holes in Saudi Arabia? Uh, at a residential compound in Riyadh. Cool. Why only three yeah, holes? 
Uh, well, it's schedule time, and uh, apparently you, you're supposed to pay green fees, and I thought it was free. So uh, <laughs> when I saw somebody coming my way, I hightailed it in the opposite direction. I was, I was basically, but you know, I mean, that that brings out a good point about golf and why it may be good for the kingdom. You know, if you're trying to do, you know, like Dubai has gone in big for cricket, but you know, you got to have 22 players right. to play cricket. Golf, you can play by yourself. Women can play against men. You hit off the different tees. The handicap system allows. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like skiing, you know, you're really playing against the course, uh, you know, and, and so theoretically with a handicap, a gifted amateur can play against a professional. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's an, there's an ecological argument against golf, but um, in terms of participation and broadening it, 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 it really, uh, paradoxically for such an expensive sport, once you get onto the greens, it's, it's actually a very democratic sport that transcends uh, gender and everything else like that. So I think it's a, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. And, and it's a lifetime sport. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, an old guy like me can go out and, and you know, me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can defile courses anywhere around the world until I die. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be hacking up divots until I'm ninety. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, when I don't finish or when I only play three holes, it's because I can't get the ball in the hole on any of the three holes. So I just say, all right, I'm picking up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's okay, right. let's move on to our first of two security-related topics today, since we have an expert with us. David, you wrote a great piece recently for the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington on Saudi Arabia's Patriot buys and the political aspects of missile defense. As you know in the article, Saudi security conditions are, quote, continuing to deteriorate. Over 300 attacks have been launched into the kingdom in the last year alone. And the current problem is that the kingdom is running out of missiles to defend itself against such attacks from Iran and the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. This seems just like a great place to start. Um, for our listeners, really quickly, check out um, his piece for the um, AGSIW, which is just fantastic. But um, I'm going to kick it over to you, Dave. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the status of the U.S.-Saudi security relationship. Yeah, good question. So uh, it's still robust. It's still very active. Um, you know, there's there's still a, a large presence, uh, American presence in the kingdom, and that presence is focused on enabling Saudi capacities. Uh, uh, the you know, most people think that there are U.S. offensive capabilities in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that wasn't the case from 2003 to 2019. Uh, after the Abqaiq attacks, the United States agreed to put some more, uh, you know, actual combat forces in. But most of the presence is actually training, advising, assisting, things like that. Um, and that's still robust. So in the last year, you know, I've lectured for two weeks at Saudi War College, uh, which is amazing. Um, you know, you think about that, you know, an American doing that, um, it, you know, there's there's ongoing uh, upgrades and modernizations uh, across the spectrum of the Saudi defense establishment. But what has happened is particularly during the Trump administration, two things. Uh, first, you've had the rise of the crown prince, which remains controversial and the actions of the crown prince you know, are controversial. Um, then you had the war in Yemen, which has not gone well. Uh, and has kind of become a uh, sort of litmus test uh, for people who are unhappy with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then because President Trump was so inartful in expressing uh, policies that, quite frankly, are uh, exactly the same as Barack Obama had, but poorly sold. You know, people forget the war in Yemen started if there was an American green light for the war in Yemen that was given by Barack Obama. <laughs> 
But people forget that. And during the Trump administration, opposing Saudi Arabia became sort of a proxy way of opposing Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, you have Joe Biden, you know, in the presidential campaign saying Saudi Arabia needs to be made a pariah. Well, then he becomes president. And, you know, there's a lot of a longstanding conflict there. And the rules of governments are very different from the rules of campaigning. And so the question is, Okay, what do we do with this longstanding security partner? Uh, What the Biden administration has done is what we see quite frequently, and I think it's a false distinction. They said, well, we'll only sell defensive weapons, not offensive weapons. You know, some weapons are easier to make that case for than others. Patriot, uh, which is a a ground to air missile system, you know, that that intercepts that. Uh, Other systems like precision guided munitions that have been used in the Yemen war are harder. So the Biden administration is trying to thread the needle here. It's trying to keep its own party base from outset revolt. They want, there are some people in the Democratic Party who want to see a total cessation of security relationship with the kingdom until the crown prince steps down, you know, until the war in Yemen stops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Pragmatic wing is trying to say, okay, these weapons good, these weapons bad. But meanwhile, it's without doubt that Saudi Arabia is under constant attack by missiles provided by Iran uh, in the next five years, probably domestically produced. And they need support. And they're running out of Patriot missiles. So, you know, what, what we're seeing now is the Biden administration going forward with that on a commercial basis and probably on a foreign military sales basis. And meanwhile, um, there are reports that the Saudis are uh, buying uh, excess Patriot from their other GCC partners. They've bought them from Greece. Uh, that has to have that requires U.S. approval. So it looks as though the United States is, you know, on board with this effort at least. And uh, we'll see where the rest of it goes. Yeah, it's a. Um- it's a it's a bad look, I think, from the South, U.S. perspective in terms of a, a partner in th- in this kind of uh, being uh, attacked on a regular basis and having a shortage of U.S. munitions and that sort of thing. But I want to I want to get to a point you made early on and come back to some others. Uh, you mentioned that the nature of the relationship is changing in terms of its training. And, and my understanding is we've had the, you know, U.S. military training mission, you submit them, uh, and then also uh, Saudi Arabia National, you know, National Guard modernization, so OPM sang, you know, since the 50s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been in there a long time. Has, yeah. has training Saudis and their sort of point of the spear in terms of the, the, the relationship in terms of, of, of that, the U.S.-Saudi relationship at that? At that level, on the ground, and these, right. this is really, in my opinion, um, you know, the, this and the business community, defense and business community, are the sort of basic sinews of the relationship because these are where real relationships are struck, long-standing commitments are made, and you have an opportunity to get to know people over time, and mm-hmm. trust, come to trust people over time. So, is are, are things you mentioned? Uh, was it o o two to 2019? Uh, 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 it's 03 to um, 2019, yeah. Well, it was when have, our combat forces left Saudi Arabia. All right. So, so has have things changed on the ground in terms of how the U.S. is interacting in terms of, with its Saudi counterparts in the military? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, they have, generally, there's, there's more positive mood. So, you know, you have the Ministry of Defense Forces. That relationship goes back to the 50s, as you said. And that seems to be on track. Um, 
the the issue, of course, is the administration has uh, said that it's not going to transfer certain kind of offensive weapons. The difference between offensive and defensive weapons is really a geopolitical concept. It's it's a political concept. It's not a military concept. Um, you know, I, w- I went through the Joint Staff Dictionary trying to find a definition of defensive weapons. There's no such thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's a political problem. Uh, in terms of the ongoing basis, the training, the assisting, uh, as much of, as the Saudis want, they get. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I'm involved with is uh, we have a foreign military sales case to help the Saudis stand up a national defense university on the lines of the American National Defense University. And uh, that is really revolutionary. You know, in the past, um, not just the Saudis, but most security partners of the United States tend to be very equipment focused. Uh, mm-hmm. I call it the Wiley Coyote model of defense capacity building. You know, they go Acme. through the... Yeah, they go through the Acme calendar. They say, okay, we got a problem with drones. All right, here's the Acme drone hunter. Buy it. And that'll solve the problem. Um, but the Saudis have actually said, no, you know, one of the reasons why we are not performing at the level we think we should is because we haven't developed a culture of critical thinking. And so we need to have a, you know, a war college, a staff college that actually does these, you know, an associated institution that looks at complex issues of developments to get our armed forces ahead. And that's a multi-million dollar effort where, you know, we've gone from having uh, one officer who, uh, you know, is on the scene to, you know, trained uh, war college faculty, academic faculty, military officers uh, working with the Saudis on that. Um, There's been some other areas where it's unclear what's going on. So the relationship with the National Guard training through the Vanilla Arabia Corporation uh, has been in place since the 70s. Uh, in the last four months, the ground component of that has just stopped, just stopped. Um, and we don't know whether that's because of a conscious decision. You know, people have always, from the outside, are always wondering, you know, is the National Guard, which is basically a redundant right. army, is it going to be folded into the Ministry of Defense? Uh, are they running it down? You know, we don't know. I mean, you know, the United States has a second army. We have the army that belongs to the United States. We have the army that belongs to the United States Navy called the United States Marine Corps. So, you know, having this redundancy is not unheard of. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, I mean, this relationship with the ground forces of the Saudi National Guard from the 1970s until now, and it just ended uh, in the last quarter of last year. So we don't know whether that means they're going to be run down or whether they just ran out of money or whether, you know, there was mismanagement or, you know, we don't know what, what the deal was with that. Um, the, uh, case for the air component of the national guard is ongoing. So maybe there was a prioritization, you know, we don't know, but in terms of the actual military to military, that's pretty much unchanged. That's pretty much unchanged. It remains robust. Uh, you know, the Saudis are never quite happy with what they get from the United States. Uh, the United States is never quite happy with the what they see as an unending demand signal from the Saudis, uh, but uh, I don't see any real change in that. That's a, that's a really useful and I think insightful sort of overview of where it is at the working level. I think from I'm always interested on any kind of perspective on what the Saudis feel about the relationship, and particularly since um, since Abkhaz and Kares in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this attack was uh, stunning, really. Yeah. Uh, complete surprise. 
um, that they weren't prepared for. You know, this is a this is a f processing facility that that deals with half of their production. I mean, it's just an extraordinary blow in terms of economic, uh, you know, the, Saudi's economy. And, yeah. and well, hold hold on though. Let's let's give Aramco some credit. Okay, so I think. Prior to the attack, if you said there was going to be a coordinated, you know, attack by cruise missiles and drones on Abcake, how long would it take to get it back in business? And people would say six months, a year. You know, it would be catastrophic. And uh, because of resiliency, yes, the active defense measures failed. But the resiliency, which is more important, the passive defense, the fact that they had spares online, that they had trained staff who knew to shut down valves so there wasn't secondary explosions, all that. You know, Abcake was back online in two weeks, and uh, the effect on the global energy market was momentary. Uh, so, so there was preparation. It just wasn't in the military and security realm. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and that's, a, that's a good point. And that's something we spoke of actually in our last episode when we were talking about um, Saudi, the global oil market and the ability, Saudi Arabia is moving from 12 million to 13 million barrels in terms of ca yeah. uh, capacity, and they hope to get there by 2027. But they're, they just they just put in uh, 4.5 billion into the Zulu offshore field. The point being is that speaks what you're talking about. That speaks to the Saudi governance and how they've managed their resources. And the fact that they have built-in resiliency and redundancy, and they and and they have spent you know enormous billions of to 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 not only uh, achieve a certain capacity, but also preserve the ability to to rebound. So, so, th I, but I don't think that gives them much comfort that they yeah. can bounce back after yeah. being revealed to be so vulnerable. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. How do the Saudis see this, and do they feel? Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. obviously they're aware, you know, I think everyone has a different take on Afghanistan, and I'm not sure everyone's is correct, or as may, mine may be different. But, but certainly the Saudis, you know, the question, and, and, and to be honest, it, you know, from their perspective is, apart from a few more Patriot batteries, nothing happened. Yeah, no, that, good question. After that the attack. Saudis, so I, yeah, how yeah. do the Saudis look at this? Yeah, I, I think after the attack on Abcake, they expected to see the U.S. Air Force bombing, you know, Isfahan. Uh, they expected to see a uh, like uh, response in in uh, kinetic terms. And, uh, you know, one of the things I mean, you know, Donald Trump was a bombastic, undisciplined speaker. Uh, you know, he spoke a lot. But when you look at what he actually did, uh, you know, he's, he's the only president in the last 20 years who didn't start another war in the Middle East. Um, he, he actually his his basic his baseline instincts were pacifistic and when the iranians shot down a global hawk drone the u.s navy global hawk drone mm -hmm. in the straits of hormuz um you know there were aircraft en route to bomb uh you know iranian targets and trump reportedly said wait a minute nobody was killed on this i'm not going to start a war you know over equipment call them back um what we're hearing is that there was a cyber attack against the iranian infrastructure but clearly that didn't satisfy the saudi um desire this post abcake Post app kick, yeah. Yeah, there was a, a yeah. cyber attack. With that, that yeah, that the U.S. directed cyber stuff like that. But you know, I mean, th what the Saudis expected was a parallel sort of kinetic. Right. You know, they wanted to see bombs landing on Iranian infrastructure, and uh, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, if that's what they expected, we got to ask ourselves why did they expect that? Um, and it's because of statements and actions we've taken, or statements and actions we haven't taken. And, you know, if 
if the nature of the relationship is one that they are not comfortable with, you know, it's, it, it calls for high level discussions as to, you know, what exactly, you know, we're willing to do for them. Um, the other problem is, yeah, you're right about Afghanistan. In the U.S. government, Afghanistan is seen as its own problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Pentagon, Afghanistan is a separate, it belongs to a separate assistant sector of defense than the Middle East. You know, the Middle East starts at Egypt and ends at the Iranian-Afghan uh, border. And that goes up to the uh, Assistant Secretary for International Security Affairs, which is going to be uh, Celeste Wallander-Givinter. She has her earring, I think, today. And then... <laughs> Um, the uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan belong to the Assistant Secretary for East Asia, who spends 98% of his time dealing with China and Korea and Japan. So, you know, we have it bifurcated. We see them as two different issues. And, and you know, I, I never worked Afghanistan in the Pentagon. I worked in the Army on the ground. But I did work Pakistan. And I can tell you that um, most of the issues being dealt with were Afghanistan as its own issue or Afghanistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia wasn't seen as having any impact on the Middle East except as a logistic base. But the problem is, first off, the Iranians saw it as encirclement from the East. Um, by the way, kind of funny, if we encircled them from the East, the fact that we've left should mean that they could stand down some of their military capacity, but they haven't. <laughs> and then our friends in the Gulf, I'm sorry, I'm being a little long winded here. Our no, friends in the Gulf great. said, you're in the neighborhood, you're gone, we're naked. And I'm not quite sure how we can deal with those perceptions. You know, there is this perception. And quite frankly, I felt it since the announcement of the pivot in the Obama administration in 2009. And the pivot was away from Europe, not from the Middle East. But ever since that was announced, folks in the region have said, oh, my God, the Americans are leaving. We're on our own. The Iranians are going to, you know, reduce us to servitude. And I don't know how you can... It's like arguing with your wife, you know, when you say you're being irrational, you know, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, <laughs> you, you can't argue a person into seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is the challenge we have, because that certainly the perception is there out there mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of, a, of a U.S. that's distracted, uh, withdrawing and, and, you know, yep. consciously redirecting. And, you know, you see at the end of 2021, Jake Sullivan, Brett McGurk, people, series of, of senior uh, administrative officials, although uh, Secretary of Defense Austin did not stop in Saudi, um, you know, going out there to try and reassure them, and and uh, and I gather that some of the some of the uh, there's been some redeployment to the to the west of the country in terms of assets and that sort of thing. But um, it's it is it is a challenge, as you say. Because your discussion of of um, theater management and you know marshaling the U.S. you know how how the U.S. addresses the area, you know doesn't resonate with them. They yeah. they they see something entirely different. And they feel something entirely different. And I think it's a real challenge. It seems to be a real challenge to try and reassure them if there's something to reassure them about. Yeah. No. You know, the problem is. And, and this is not limited to the Middle East. You see this in Japan and Korea and Europe. Uh, if you have U.S. forces based someplace, the host nation tends to view those as our forces. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of one of the challenges uh, I've argued in print that we should never put an aircraft carrier in the Gulf. Um, it's stupid. It limits the ability of the aircraft carrier. Um, the ships around it have to devote all their energy to protecting the aircraft carrier that should be in the missile defense mode. Right be better to have, you know, sort of isolated bases on the Arab side of the Gulf 
fly the planes in there, project the power that way. That way you have something that can't be sunk and killed 2,000 people at once. Um, but, you know, very senior people in the Saudi government and other are like, why is there not an aircraft carrier in the Gulf? You know, <laughs> they, they freak out over that. Uh, they, they've come to see it as an entitlement. And when it's not there, they see it as the United States uh, sort of uh, reneging on informal security commitments. Um, so yeah. so if I, sorry to interrupt, if I were listening to this conversation, yeah. I might conclude that it's a communication breakdown. Is that all it is? Or are there well, some, are there some cha you know, philosophical yeah. changes? Well, well, there's a couple of problems. So the first problem is, yeah, at its basis is a, is a communication issue. I mean, um, you know, when I went, as you can tell by my accent, I went to graduate school in London, right? So when I went there in 1989, my mom and my dad were freaking out because they were saying, oh my gosh, you know, it's Europe, there's terrorism there. And I was able to show them figures, you know, I said, look, I was, I was born in Los Angeles County, you know, my chances of dying oh, yeah. a violent death are greater <laughs> as a male in Los Angeles County than there are if I were a British soldier in Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, there's there's that perception. Americans think, you know, I mean, you know, when I go to the Middle East and I go frequently, the greatest threat is of traffic. You know, you know that. Right. Uh, you know, and the Saudis will tell you that. But, uh, you know, everybody freaks out over terrorism, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, geez, you know, I worked in the, you know, the Pentagon for 12 years, you know, uh, you know, the 9-11 attacks. I mean, uh, so so there is that perception. That's problem number one. Problem number two is, uh, and again, this goes back to the Obama-Trump-Biden thing. Uh, Trump was so, you know, used phrases like my favorite dictator, stuff like that, which allowed his political adversaries in the other party to, you know, stand against him. And, you know, Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states, none of them are democracies. And so it's very easy for a person who wanted to score a point on Trump to say, okay, we're against this. The problem is they've painted themselves into a corner. And now that they're in power, you know, you have this elaborate game where President Biden refuses to take a phone call from uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who, you know, everybody knows is running the show in the kingdom because it's not his not his parallel. You know, well, OK, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE is only the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. Uh, you know, are you not going to take his call? Um Theoretically, Boris Johnson is not Joe Biden's parallel. It's Queen Elizabeth is. She's the head of state. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it, there, there's a lot of ridiculousness that, you know, is over the Khashoggi murder and things that were said in in the primaries that, you know, the president is painting himself into a corner. And, and it has to do with the internal, you know, the internal dynamics of the Democratic Party, which, you know, elements of it have moved further to the left. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and then the final problem is just institutionally. Things like Patriot batteries are high demand, low density. And when you deploy a Patriot battery on an emergency basis to Abcake in 2019, people tend to forget that the soldiers who come with that, those are guys who have probably been, you know, on a remote air base in the Middle East for a year. And they were promised, you know, okay, this is your year back at Fort Bliss or Fort Sill. And, you know, you can go to your kid's high school graduation, all that. And all of a sudden, nope, nope, sorry, back to the desert. And so what you see is that the sergeants, you know, you can't just hire guys for a Patriot battery. You have to build them over years. A lot of those guys weren't reenlisting. Um, you know, there, there is stress on the force and it's not just equipment. It's also the personnel. And, uh, you know, so people tend to overlook that. 
And um, so there's a lot of factors that lead, that reinforce what at the end of the day is a fundamental insecurity, which is, you know, how committed is the United States to us? We live in this regime, in this region, you don't. And so whenever it looks like we're uh, diminishing our, our participation in the region, you know, the, the, the fears come to the forefront. Uh, that's interesting when you talk about perceptions when when there are American troops on the ground, you know, the host nations come to think of them as their own. And it's also, yep. you know, what you just said about the basic, you know, and, you know, bureaucracy of a of a of an entity, an organism as large as the U.S. military and, and taking care of its people. And there's always the assumption that it's a bottomless well in terms yep. of capacity and availability and capability, which you know, you know, anybody that's in the in the in the military knows it's not that it's a plenty. Nightmare. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And it, this is a universal problem. Just in the domestic context, um, you know, we've got Corona surging here and you hear all these governors say we need to call out the National Guard. And it's like, well, you know, the National Guard is not they're not kept hermetically sealed. You know, these are people who have jobs. <laughs> and, you know, particularly if you say you want a medical person from the National Guard or the Army Reserve, well, you know, they're part-time soldiers. If they are in a medical specialty, the chances are pretty good they're working in their civilian capacity in a medical job. So if you mm -hmm. call them out as National Guardsmen, you know, you're going to see like a doctor leaving his job at one hospital to put on a uniform and work at another hospital. What have you gained? Um, that's in the domestic context. It's the same thing in the international context, you know. Um, you've got countries that are like, well, why aren't there soldiers here? What are they doing? And the answer is, you know, they're people and they're on a cycle. And when you had that deployment to Abcake, you disrupted that cycle. And that hurts the institution. Yeah, it's interesting, just uh, as an aside, that's, that, that example you just, you just made is very close to home. Uh, 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 my son's, a very good friend of my son's is, a, is a, a nurse in San Antonio with the Army. So she's there with the hospital there. She spent the last six months in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, yeah. helping out people because, you know, hard hit areas that have been hard hit by COVID and, and who can't get nurses and, and um, you know, can't pay the nurses to get them to come in. So, you know, the, the, the military is, is trying to fill this gap domestically and, and it's, a, it's a real challenge. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, as I said, it's not a bottomless well and you can't just go, go to it whenever you have a need. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, Afghan refugees have been settled at Fort Bliss, Texas, and I've heard uh, informally, so I don't know how true this is, that, that the entire 1st Armored Division is basically consumed with that mission. You know, so we only have nine divisions in the U.S. Army, and you've got one of those offline doing an extraneous mission. Um, you know, and, and, and the problem, I, I, I was I was the Department of Defense's liaison at the Department of Homeland Security for three years. And I noticed in all the planning for hurricanes, earthquakes, pandemic influenza, terrorist strikes, the, the rest of the U.S. government would plan up to a you know, wildfires. They'd plan up to a certain point and then they'd say, call in the Department of Defense. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, so we, we do that domestically. You know, there, there was like this mental line where the problem became too hard. And they said, oh, we'll give it to the Department of Defense. <laughs> we, can't, we can't think yeah. about this anymore. Call That's in right. The, That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Um, another, uh, another question, and maybe this is, you know, our, our next segment is going to be on, the, on Saudi efforts to, to build a military industry. Mm -hmm. um, but how do we deal with what they're dealing with now? What is actually sort of... Um, 
uh, characteristic of modern warfare, and these are these are these are asymmetrical, low cost, yeah. you know, drones, missiles um, that are very difficult to defend against, and as you pointed out in your excellent article, extremely expensive. You know, we're basically basically trading twenty thousand at the most, you know, for a for a, a souped up drone for a million dollar Patriot. How, how oh, four million dollar Patriot? Oh, all right, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah inflation. Yeah. I didn't know inflation hit so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. Well, theoretically, uh, you know, if you look at Vision Twenty Thirty, if it holds, uh, smaller states have an advantage in this new warfare because they're they're nimble and they haven't invested all the money in the big infrastructure that we have. So, if you go to the U.S. Navy and give them any problem uh, and listen to their answers, you know, how would you solve this? Uh, you'll realize that their thinking is, how can we base the possible solution to this on an aircraft carrier or a littoral combat ship? You know, they tend to think in terms of the systems they have in justifying those. Uh, Saudi Arabia has imported all that. They don't have that domestically. And they're trying to build a domestic defense industry. You know, you start small. So they have, uh, you know, uh, 11 areas of emphasis in their defense industry. One of them is developing UAVs. Another mm -hmm. one is developing the maintenance and overhaul, uh, you know, repair and overhaul for UAVs. So, um, you know, theoretically starting from a base there where you have it, where you don't have those fixed costs and you succumb to the gambler's dilemma where you say, we've spent so much on this, we have to justify it which is what the U.S. Navy does with aircraft carriers, uh -huh. um, uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you, you can move more nimbly, uh, you know, approach these things with a clean sheet and say, okay, how can we defeat these? And so another one of these, you know, another uh, two of the Saudi things are uh, directed energy. And um, uh, they're also looking at uh, development of um, defense electronics, electronic warfare. Uh you know, those are those are promising areas so, for uh, counter drone defense. Fascinating. We're going to make you repeat that for our next segment. Uh, and but I had I had one more question that I, I sure. think fits into this security situation. And Lucian, I, yep. jump in. I, I'm sure I've no, been rolling along here. Um, Saudi 2022 defense budget for Saudi they're cutting at 10 10 percent, and this is the fifth consecutive year they've cut it. Um, yeah. So it's going down from 57 billion to 45 and a half billion. And, and as we know, Saudi Arabia has been a reliable, you know, purchaser of arms and at extraordinary levels with regard to its GDP. Do you, what do you what do you take? What do you make of that? Uh, it's 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 kind of normal. I mean, first off, a lot of the the Saudi defense budget does not equal what is spent to defend the Saudi state. So, you know, you've got the National Guard, you've got new presidential security. Uh, a lot of the Ministry of the Interior serves as a sort of army. Um, so uh, there's still a lot more there than we think. But I think a lot of the spikes reflected uh, procurement spikes. Uh, so the F-15 uh, recapitalization is uh, on course and trickling down. We've seen uh, uh, the completion of the Patriot modernization. Um, we're told that there'll be another modernization and expansion of Patriot in the next few years, but that's not baked into the budget. So, uh, and, you know, hopefully if there is effective reform, um, you know, at least in the short term, things that are produced in Saudi Arabia are going to be more expensive than they could be produced overseas. But uh, if Saudi Arabia actually manages to achieve a true sustained 
uh, industrial base, defense industrial base, you should, uh, within about 10 years, I think, start to see uh, costs fall down. Right now, uh, I, I, this is a cynical view, but I'm a cynical dude. Um, uh, you know, so far, what Saudi Arabia is succeeding in doing in domestic defense production is building the most expensive, you know, metal boxes for an Apache helicopter fire control unit. But as, you know, learning and industries take root, if they do, um, you know, you should see uh, efficiencies and price reductions. And Saudi Arabia will start getting more bang for the buck instead of less. So let's just let's make the pivot official. Um, Absolutely. Sure. And um, let's talk a little don't bit about say, the Don't say pivot with the Saudis. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, we're, we're now going to talk about Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the homegrown defense industry in Saudi Arabia. Uh, mm -hmm. Under Vision 2030, the kingdom said it is seeking to localize 50% of its military expenditure. Richard just yeah. talked in our last segment. And for our YouTube viewers who are watching these as segments, make sure you listen to the other segment uh, where we talk about the U.S.-Saudi security balance because there's a lot in there. Uh, but uh, the kingdom spent $190 billion on the military uh, in 2021. But for 2022, that budgeted spend is coming down to 171 billion rials, $46 billion. Um, this may be good news for Saudi Arabia if and when it's achieved, but potentially concerning for U.S. defense contractors. Um, Dave, let's talk a little bit about sort of the def homegrown defense industry in Saudi Arabia. Where is it now? Is this 50% of its localization achievable by 2030? Um, let's dive into it a little bit. Yeah, good question. So I got to take you back to Burger King, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, five years ago, you know, if you saw Saudi and Burger King, you know, working there. And, and he probably wasn't working. He was probably wearing a uniform standing behind the counter. But uh, that was like seeing a, a zebra walking down, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington. And now you routinely see Saudis working uh, in jobs that would have been unthinkable five years ago. So when you look at the defense industry, the question is, are you going to just, you know, sort of funnel uh, Machiadora tasks, you know, like importing uh, weapons as kits and assembling them, you know, bolting them and welding them and then saying, OK, that's done. Or are you going to actually have a truly sustained defense space to get a true defense industry? You know, you look at countries that have done this like and I, I know they're not going to like this, but a, a real success is Iran. And um, what Iran has that Saudi Arabia doesn't have is a 20 year head leap. They started this in the fifties under the Shah, where they start training, not just scientists, which is what things like King, uh, um, King Abdullah university of science and technology, you know, the science base, that's good. But what you really need are engineers, a uh, little less trained, a little less theoretical, taking existing science and harnessing it to solve problems. That's a little harder and it's not as prestigious. And then you need trained workers, craftsmen, people like welders. And there's a universal shortage in this. When Australia wanted to build its own submarines, it realized the problem was it had scientists, it had engineers, didn't have welders to actually weld the holes on submarines. And these are skills. And the, the question, the first question I saw when I read Vision 2030 for the first time is, are they going to be able to get Saudis to work in factories on these unglamorous things like, you know, welding, testing, metal fabrication, or are they going to have factories loaded, located in Saudi Arabia, but have third country nationals actually doing the work? You know, will, will the Saudis show up on time? Will the, you know, all these problems you have whenever you open a factory, you know, in South Carolina or something like that. 
what we're seeing is it's looking like it's working pretty well, but it's going to take a long time. Um, the Saudis incentive structures tend to reward people who sit in offices and write papers. Uh, they have to be modified to, uh, you know, give that same level of status and reward to somebody who works as a welder. And that's going to take a long time. That's going to take about a generation, but the social change has, has already happened rap more rapidly than I would have predicted. I mean, I don't know if you guys agree with that assessment. Um, uh, absolutely. The, the, the pace is, the pace is shocking. Uh, yeah. and, and, We've talked a little bit about on the social aspect, there may be some pullback and or some repercussions. But we've done a segment on um, on the automotive industry. Uh, we've done mm -hmm. a segment on the mining industry, and uh, many of the motivations are the same. Uh, there's a little, there's an overlay of a strategic uh, need in terms of the military industry. All three yeah. of these, auto, mining, military, they fall under their national industrialization uh, industrialization development program. And they, they all they all look at it as um, not only having an economic rationale, but particularly job creation. And yeah. when you when you when you fill out the full ecosystem, you know all sorts of ancillary jobs and and these sort of thing. But uh, that issue uh, that you just put your finger on right out of the gate: who's qualified to do these jobs, and and yeah. how long will it take to get there? And that that informs everything about Vision 2030. Is you can you can you can let you can uh, rewrite law, you can implement reforms, you can move ahead here and there, but you still have to to the the training up an, a generation of Saudis capable of doing this takes a generation. Yeah. And uh, the the governor of the General Authority for Military Industries, Gami uh, Ahmed Al Othi. Um, talks sort of openly about this. He says, you know, one of the things we have to do is upskill, and we're going to do, that was very interesting what you mentioned earlier about the establishment of a national defense university. This is not the same thing, but, you know, he talks about a lot of our early work has got to be upskilling young Saudis. Yeah. And, I, I, and I appreciate it. He was in, he was in the UK at a, at a defense show, and he said, you know, that 50% by 2030, I think he essentially was saying, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But you know that's what we're that's what we're shooting for, no pun intended. Um, uh, but yeah, that uh, you know that always comes back to if you get we, we want to create jobs, and we're talking a hundred thousand dollars in this this military industry that they a hundred thousand jobs uh, that they'd like to see. Uh, but you got to train them, you got to educate them, you got to find them. Yeah, and it's gonna be it's gonna be hard because if I were an individual factory factory owner, um, you know. I would lean towards, okay, I've got a factory in Saudi Arabia. I've got guys working here. I'm going to hire Bangladeshis <laughs> at a fraction of this. Uh -huh. And so there, there has to be a level of, you know, and I think the fact that this is a national program, I think there's going to be some acceptance of inefficiencies. You know, people are going to say, you know, yes, we are not doing this as efficient as we can because we are educating our workforce. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it. Uh, I think that's, that's a part of it. And so, you know, they've got to build the skilled craftsman workforce. And this is a challenge. I mean, this is why, you know, there are angry people who've put in a deposit on Tesla and can't get them because Elon Musk neglected that. He just felt, oh, yeah, I just hire people and tell them right. screw on bolts. He didn't realize that there's actually a level of craft that comes in there. We neglect craft. We, we focus on intellect and to a certain extent on engineering. We neglect craft, but there is craft in manufacturing. And then the engineering culture, 
which is also hard to do because it requires critical thinking. It requires questioning assumptions, things that culturally have not been encouraged in the Saudi context, uh, in particularly in Saudi government. Um, but that engineering culture, you know, can take can take root relatively quickly. And you know, when I look at you know a medium sized state with an engineering culture, I look at the the current hot weapon is the Turkish TB two Bayraktar drone. You know, I mean, you know, the, 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 you talk to, you know, a casual observer of the military and they, they'll say, oh, yeah, the TB2 won the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Well, that's not the case, but it is a, an effective drone. Um, you know, it's killed uh, 23 of the, um, uh, the Russian uh, uh, self-panzer, uh, mm-hmm. S1 panzer, yeah. which... Five years ago, you know, after the Abkhaz attack, you know, the Russians were like, oh, yeah, just buy these and that'll solve your problem. It's killed 23 of those. Um, and everybody wants it. There's nothing on there that's revolutionary. A lot of those components were just bought on the open market. You know, the gimbal was Canadian and it's assembled. That taking these components and integrating them and then perfecting it uh, so that, you know, you've got the ideal compromise between weight and distance, that's engineering. That's really a process of critical thinking applied to various systems here. That is an achievable goal for the kingdom within five, 10 years. So, you know. Uh, there's so much in that that you just said, uh, but some of it fun, some of it uh, actually on topic. So I'll go with the on topic one. <laughs> Although I have to mention, some of the. You want on topic, get another guest. I'm trying to stay on topic because, you know, when you mentioned that Turkish drone, I. I, I I've, you know, what these images of all these Russian mechanized vehicles with these jury-rigged grids on them. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, yeah in the Ukraine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, flat armor. yeah you know, and, they're, and because they're, they're terrified of this, and they, you know, and I don't know that these work, but it's just odd-looking sort of, uh, you know, extensions yeah. and, and grids and that sort of thing, hoping to somehow you know, detour this drone. And, and one more digression, speaking of Elon Musk, you know, I, I gather he, he delayed the, the, the introduction of the X model by two years because he wanted those gull wing doors. And just as yeah. you say, you know, the engineers looked around and said, okay, how do we make this feasible in any kind of production, you know, scalability? Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, but uh, to the point um, about ec- uneconomical, and, and I think, you know, people look at Saudi Arabia and, and a lot of people just don't get it. And, yep. I, and a lot of people, in my opinion, go, well, you know, these these uh, goals are outrageous. They're overly ambitious. They're just, you know, they're not based in reality. And, 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 and my response is that's not the point. Yeah. The, the point is the direction they're heading. And part of this commitment in terms of Vision 2030 is really a planned inefficiency. So, so when they talk about an automotive industry and Lucid coming there in some 25, 26 and opening up a manufacturing process, well, this is going to entail enormous incentives. Yeah. Not, not efficient incentives, you know, but that's not the point. The point is they're trying to develop an automotive industry. Same with mining, which we just did. You know, they, they have, They've just rolled out a whole new mining plan in effect of January 2021. You know, that has significant incentives. Um, and, you know, I, I look at the, the, the Saudiization, the Nitakat, and if you look at that, anytime you, anytime you mandate employment levels, it's economically inefficient. Yeah. And there's studies, all, you know, all over that say, you know, the result was that the, the, the good companies that were 
were, were, were moving along well and had export levels and were fairly efficient and got hit. But again, the point was, all right, we want to take, we'll, we'll, we'll go one step back in order to get two steps forward. Yeah. And so, so much of what they're doing is exactly this. And it sounds like this is sort of what we'll be seeing in, the, in, that, in their efforts to develop a military industry. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Look, um, you know, the, there's two, when you look at Vision 2030, uh, which really is a remarkable document, there's two things that bring you to the military section of it. The first one is that's the one area that the state can turn on and off like a tap. You know, everything else, you know, getting people to exercise, you know, unless you're North Korea, you're not going to do that. <laughs> um, but the military, you know, they can say, we're going to buy this stuff. We're not going to buy this stuff. You know, we need it. We don't. Um, uh, so so that's the first thing. And, and, you know, I think when you look at achieving Vision 2030 goals, the military goals are, are actually better than, than most. And I, I think that in some instances, some of the targets for things like uh, local production of the Saudi National Guard are actually going to be accelerated. They're actually going to be achieved ahead of time schedule. I think that may be part of the reason why the Vanel contract was terminated for the ground force uh, training in the Saudi National Guard. Um, but yeah, there's, there's always, if, if you have a national security premium, if you decide that it is, it is a national security interest of ours to have a trained workforce at the scientist engineering and craftsman level so that we can produce our own weaponry so that, you know, if the Germans get angry at us over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi or the Yemen war, you know, they cut us off, we can fabricate our own parts. Um, then you pay a premium. And, you know, people criticize that because we look at it as Westerners where we have to be cost effective, but let's face facts. The Saudis are rich. Uh, you know, they're not as rich as everybody thinks they are, but they're still rich. And um, if they overpay, so what? You know, that's that's their comparative advantage. And uh, it's, it strikes me as being a wise approach to develop a self-sustainable defense industry, if that's what they really want. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, upcoming defense industry event held in Saudi Arabia. It's going to be the first first of its kind. The World Defense Show begins on March 6 in Riyadh. That's also really interesting. It's usually in the UAE. Um, mm -hmm. Or, or there's a, usually a competing event in the UAE, but this is the first that will be in Riyadh. Interesting timing with everything. Just wanted yeah. to add that in there. There should be very interesting participants in that show as well. Yeah, yeah. That's um, uh, they're really they're really promoting that. I guess that's their first one, and they've they've got a purpose built site. They think it'll make some money, and and they claim to be you know the only one that covers all five domains of defense: land, air, sea, security, and space. This is not I'm a waiting on plug. my. <laughs> I'm waiting that, on my invitation. Oh yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. Do you think you might be there? Uh, I will be in the region. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a CENTCOM thing on March 10th, but other than that, I'm pretty much free. Yeah. So if anyone Maybe. from GAMI is listening to this podcast, we have a, uh, <laughs> exactly. 30 year veteran that's looking for an invite. So let's get that his way. And once again, you know, we cannot emphasize this enough If anybody from PIF is listening. We're happy with lucid air. We don't need the top of the line. We'll, we'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll take the bells and whistles, though. You know, I mean, since we're asking. <laughs> so, so Dave, before we go, I mean, we're, you know, we don't need to leave the subject, but uh, you know, uh, there's a in there's the there's a, the general authority uh, for military industries, which mm -hmm. is sort of the regulatory body. Yeah. And there's the Saudi Arabian military, uh, uh, SAMI, S A M I. Right. 
which is really, uh, you know, sort of like a, a company that's out engaging and trying to, you know, partner with, with things. And there's a, so that I think there's com some confusion often yeah. as to uh, the regulatory body and actually what SAMI is. Yeah. Um, and, and we talked some time back about trying to figure that one out. Uh, but it's going to be interesting because when you look at the, the, ind the companies that are, seem to be out there, uh, engaging and partnering with with other companies, SAMI is one. Uh, mm -hmm. Advanced Electronics Corporation is another. Uh, both PIF owned, PIF yeah. Public Investment Fund. Uh, I mean, Alzamo does marine stuff, but there's not mm -hmm. a lot of private sector groups out there that I'm, I'm aware of. And well, yeah, El Salam, you know, sort of joint ventures with like American firms and Saudi firms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the way it was explained to me. The, the way SAMI will work is sort of as a tech incubator. So it takes on risky areas that the market won't ordinarily do. And it sort of, you know, brings it along with partners and then eventually steps back and allows private industry. That has been an effective model for some areas, you know, Silicon Valley has had a lot of that. And uh, uh, some of the Route 128 tech firms around Boston, um, there's actually a, uh, 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 tech incubator co-located with Northeastern University's drone lab. I've brought Saudi military officers there in the past. Um, yeah, but for it to work, and I'm sorry, I, this is like the fourth time I've mentioned this, uh, usually in context of Donald Trump, I'm sorry to get all West Point on you. It requires discipline. Um, and it's very, very hard. You know, Sammy has to invest, identify first off key areas, invest in it, and then have the discipline to withdraw and let the project run. And it's, that's, that's a hard thing to do if you're showing results, particularly in the Saudi bureaucratic concept, to step back. I, I'm not sure if, how workable that's going to be. Uh, by the way, that's sort of, the, that's sort of the, the hanging question with the PIF in general. Yeah. In terms of that, the whole economy. But you, you referenced it in our, in our other segment on the U.S.-Saudi security relationship. You talked about the advantages of, of starting from nothing, a blank slate, yes. and, mm -hmm. and being able to target industries. Can you, go, can, you, can you recapitulate that for us a little bit? Well, basically what I said was that if you have a, you know, a domestic industry that's already well-established, um, the natural tendency is you know, people have jobs, you have industrial development, and you try to force whatever the problem is, whatever the solution is into those existing components. So, you know, you, you give a problem like drone defense to the U.S. Navy, their question is, okay, how can we get aircraft carriers in the Zumwalt-class destroyer to deal with drones? Um, it, it's very, very hard for people to move off of that. Uh, one of the big uh, arguments I have with the U.S. Air Force is the problem, one of the problems with the U.S. Air Force is the pilot pipeline. And, you know, it costs so much to train a pilot when drones come online, uh, you know, the Air Force said, yeah, we'll take drones. But they insisted that every drone be flown by a trained pilot so that you cannot replace a manned aircraft with a drone because you're still going through the same bottleneck. You know, bureaucratically, they continue to do that. Um, so, you know, Saudi Arabia uh, has, in theory, along with other countries, you know, medium sized countries, Turkey's drone success is a good example of this. You know, they can start with a blank sheet and just say, okay, what's what's best, what's most effective, what's most cost effective. They can do that without having uh, the investment in other industries. And, 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 you know, this isn't just an American problem. Um, so much of France's arms sales 
uh, are driven by a need to keep the Lehav shipyards open. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you look at if you look at instances, you know, with, you know, conflicts with France over weapon sales in the past five years, so much of it is driven by the need to keep that ancient, you know, founded right. by Cardinal Richelieu <laughs> shipyard open, um, you know, to keep them busy. Uh, so Saudi Arabia doesn't have that. They, they literally are starting, you know, they, they have other disadvantages. They don't have they don't have the culture of nine to five workmanship. They don't have the culture of craft. Uh, but. You know, I, I would have thought six years ago it was impossible to see Saudis working in fast food, and they are. So, hmm. fascinating stuff. This is yeah. good stuff, Dave. You're the you're a rock star. We oh. we talk about this podcast. It's a tie. It's a tie. <laughs> Richard, we we love doing this because we we learn when we're doing this. But I, I don't yeah. know if we've learned more in one episode than this episode. So this has been really great. This Let's awesome. move on to the Yellas uh, segment, Saudi in a minute, and we'll wrap this up. Saudi um, in a minute. Uh, you look, Richard, if you want to get us going, uh, just get us started. And uh, David, you go ahead and weigh in, um, at, at, you uh, know, okay. just in response. First one, foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, and Bahrain, and the Secretary General of the Gulf Cooperation Council arrived in Beijing on Monday for a five-day visit to further negotiations over a China-GCC free trade agreement and strengthening of China's economic ties with the bloc. The first ever coordinated visit by a GCC delegation is being seen uh, by experts as quote-unquote historically unprecedented and a positive step towards achieving a China-GCC free trade agreement. It is, you know, it is pretty, it is striking. I mean, when you consider that you know, we had the, the, the foreign ministers of, you know, four countries, four GCC states coming here and the, the head of the GCC, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big thing and it's being yeah. treated as such. Yeah, I suppose as a jingoistic American, it's uh, I'd be ha I'm happier seeing the GCC as a block engaging with China than individual GCC states. Uh, you know, China's game is to generally pick people off and get them to do it. I, I suppose if there's a consonant GCC trade policy, that makes it uh, uh, that that sort of negates uh, uh, China's advantage, which tends to be. Uh, sort of playing on the margins or outside the rules. So right. I suppose I suppose it's a positive development from American interests. And it is interesting how a how a, a regional trade alliance seems less threatening than a bilateral one. That's right. That's, 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 well that's a, a series a series of bilateral right. ones. Because right. because then you get like a race to the bottom and uh, you know China will be able to, you know, exact concessions and things like that. So so I suppose I suppose if you know they have trade with China Ironically enough, we guarantee that trade through our robust military presence in the Gulf. Uh, they don't seem very grateful for it. Um, I suppose the least damaging way is if it's a common trade policy. The Chinese thank you note is in the mail. Well, you know, we we have uh, we have a little bit of cognitive dissonance over this because, you know, on the one hand, you see U.S. government people complain about, yeah, you know, we provide the trade for them. And it's like, okay, so what if the Chinese took us up and said, yeah, you're exactly right. We've got three aircraft carriers. We'll station one of them permanently in the Gulf. Everybody in Washington would have an aneurysm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we complain about it, but we don't want them to do anything about it. You know, the, the, you know, yeah, we, we have our own cognitive dissonance in the United States. Yeah. 
Second topic, authorities in Saudi Arabia are preparing to launch the 2022 census, which will be the fifth in the kingdom's history. The last gen pop and housing census in the kingdom took place in 2010, and the total population at that time was 27,136,977. Um, this is according to the General Authority for Statistics. The World Bank estimated the kingdom's population now at 34.8 million in 2020. Um, interesting. Yeah. Mo data, mo better. And and that's the motto know, of the general. Mo data, mo better. I like that. Somebody yeah. wrote a rap song, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, your reference earlier. It, it, uh, so many things about Saudi Arabia. It, it, uh, any uh, you know, not emerging company, but a developing country. That you know, you, it, there's disadvantages that you don't have legacy legacy systems, and advantages that you don't have legacy systems. And you see yeah. this, and and when they're trying to implement fourth industrial revolution technologies, you know, oh great, we we can sort of just adopt this whole hog. But this will be the first sense that is done technology, you know, technologically. It's, you know, they're using modern technologies, and you run into that often with Saudi Arabia. People aren't aware yeah. that you know. You know, they couldn't even keep track of who was employed by this or that. So this will be their first, you know, they'll use, you know, comprehensive modern technology for the first time in, in, in counting their populations. Yeah, and, and they're not, you know, some of the problems we have in the U.S. government is, uh, you know, we have equipment located on, or on, or data located on obsolete machines that just aren't made yeah. anymore. I mean, you know, I still got... <laughs> I still got some floppy disk stuff, and and uh, you know they're they're able to shift the generation. One of the things that amazed me when I went to uh, I deployed as a soldier to Bosnia in the wake of the war there, and uh, you know this country was war torn. There were blown up houses everywhere, but the cell phone service was better than in the United States because we had invested all this money in laying wire and then in laying fiber optic cables, and they went straight to cellular and towers. Right. And so. Even though this country was war-torn and there was hunger and famine and cold, their cell phone service was better than ours. And the Saudis are, <laughs> Saudis are in a good position uh, to take advantage of that. They're coming to it late. Can I can I give you a couple other things I'd like to see data collected on? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I got two things. So the first thing is, um, and I learned this when I worked narcotics in the 90s. I, I, I was in the Clinton White House drug office. Um, data is the key to everything. And one of the things that would be really helpful would be if there was like an annual or semi-annual uh, survey of attitudes towards corruption, ease of doing business in the government, uh, public attitudes towards different things, you know, the economy, da 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 da. That would give you a baseline to do that. And, um, you know, that would just be wonderful. Uh, it would be hard to get Saudis agree to do that because, you know, it's not as open a society, but, you know, then you could measure things like how effective is Vision 2030? You know, is it working on this, that, and the other? Um, the second thing, and this I'd like to see done in the United States as well. This, this sounds weird, but trust me, it's really good. Systematic samplage of water, wastewater treatment and sewage. Mm. Um, you know, we're able to tell in cities that do this, New York City does this, they're able to measure what the actual COVID rate is right. by sewage samples and same things with drug abuse you know even you know all of our indications of drug abuse are indirect uh they're like arrests or hospital rooms emissions but you could find out if you by by sampling wastewater and because it's so consolidated in the kingdom it's a lot easier to do than it would be in the united states and you could you could get you know 
public health data, data on substance abuse, data on pollution, just a host of data for, for marginal cost. Well, uh, fascinating. One of the yellow topics is is, is uh, drug interdiction in Saudi. But yeah, uh, those are those are those are excellent suggestions. And it, would, it would be interesting on the census if it has any additional questions other than the basic uh, yeah. informational yeah. one. Uh, yellow number three, the final four style Spanish Super Cup returned to Saudi Arabia after a one-year pandemic hiatus, held in Riyadh this year as opposed to Jeddah in 2019. Uh, from January 12 to the 16th, Super Cup features La Liga teams Barcelona, uh, Real, Ma Real Madrid, uh, Atletico Madrid, and Athletic. And I gather uh, they just started. So I, in the first semi, I guess Real Madrid beat Barcelona. I was going to say Barcelona. Oh, I'm <laughs> impressed. Barcelona with a real, yeah, the real. Because no, yeah, well well it's, it's a poser, <laughs> but it's, it's highly just uh, completely poser. But uh, I, have a, I, have a, I have a good friend living in Bar Barcelona at the moment. But anyway, so Real Madrid beat the B guys 3-2 yesterday. <laughs> you know, one, one of the things that always irritates me is like listening to the radio when you know people will speak in English and then they say well, when I was in Los Angeles Los Angeles I had a burrito <laughs> but uh, you, 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 occasionally I find myself saying Abu Dhabi and then I, I have to you know, slap myself for, exactly. for going like that you know, or, or I'd say Riyadh instead of Riyadh yeah um, well, this uh, is, this goes back to the golf, doesn't it? It's it's it uh, it's a prestige event. Um, I'm amazed at just how popular soccer is in, uh, well, actually anywhere because it's such a boring game. Uh, you know, I, I I tend to I tend to think only communists watch it, but um, uh, you know, I mean, God, they play for you know three hours and it's a draw. Um, it's basically it's basically hockey on Xanax. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and, and the other thing, of course, is if you dive in hockey, you get a penalty. Oh, plus my you goodness. Get, plus you get the crap beaten out of you the next time you're on the ice. But, uh, you know, this is this is a good thing, I think. Um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be critics. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the Saudis are overpaying. Uh, they have to at this point. But, uh, you know, um, well, you know, if this can take root, uh, it is a good thing. And... Uh, I really do believe that sport is, uh, you know, it, it is a function. It, it brings about international reconciliation. So why not? The uh, I'll add to your list of, of grievances against soccer is when they score a goal and they run away from their teammates. Just yeah, that's that. right. It irritates the heck out of me. It was yeah, all right. me. Football, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They all, they all bunch into each other. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. But yeah, you know the super this the Spanish Super Cup. It's really interesting. I, I mean, and you know, obviously they they just spent four hundred million and uh, four hundred twenty million in Newcastle. It looks like it's a billion for a, a, a big big chunk of Inter Milan, which is what they're talking about. So this mm -hmm. this is a ten year deal versus worth you know close to three hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah. And again, you know, it does tie back into what the the they're trying to bring, build a football culture in Saudi Arabia. They have a very strong football culture, actually. So I mean, right. I mean, there's, there's right. a love of it, but they're really trying to build it uh, into a, a you know a really significant part of society. So it, it's fascinating. All everything yeah. is involved with it. Staying yeah. with yeah. that theme. Um, the, the, I guess it's the fourth now. According to a report this week in Reuters, Qatar and Saudi Arabia have halted efforts at the WTO, WTO 
to resolve a dispute over the alleged privacy of content produced by Doha-owned sports and entertainment channel BN. The two countries notified the WTO that they were mutually suspending their remaining requests before its dispute resolution body. Notices published published by the WTO on Friday show. Last January, an agreement signed by Gulf Arab leaders at a summit in Al-Ullah, Saudi Arabia, ended the bitter, dis- bitter, bitter dispute between Qatar and its neighbors, including Saudi Arabia. As part of that agreement, Reuters reports, Qatar agreed to terminate all legal battles connected to the dispute. Um, this is interesting. This is over the privacy rights of, um, of uh, soccer games broadcast in Saudi Arabia. It's sort of like one of the last hatchet-burying actions between the two countries. Yeah. 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 Well, well, look, I mean, you know, you when you were in the kingdom, you'd see the BN signal and, uh, you know, we'd have the thing in the bottom that said be out to. And so what BN did was they had their little bug crawling across the screen. Um, you know, it, clearly it, it didn't show Saudi Arabia at its best light. And quite frankly, I, I'm sure that the Saudis have made some sort of a fiscal settlement. Um, I think that's a good thing. I mean, one of the problems that in the long term on this uh yeah i mean who cares you can't watch soccer but uh <laughs> answers answers most of the world except for me um but uh, uh uh the fact that when the cutteries tried to um sue they couldn't get an attorney in the kingdom who would take their case mm-hmm. and that becomes an issue of rule of law and safety of investments and protection of intellectual property that in the long run hurts the kingdom. It basically shows that this is not a rule of law system where, you know, if you invest your money, your rights will be protected. It, 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 it didn't do that. So I think it's in the interest of the kingdom to do that. It's in the interest of the kingdom to um, make the cutteries whole and happy. And uh, I, I think that this is an episode that you know, is, is uh, best um, in the past and that hopefully there will be another precedent that kind of shows this sort of thing won't happen in the future. Yeah, yeah. It, it's nice to see, and we, we've talked about it. it, it's nice to see some diplomacy breaking out. And this is, this yeah. is yeah. you know, MBS just made a tour of, of most of the Gulf states and the GCC just had a, their 42nd summit in, in Riyadh in December. Um, and there seems to be a real effort to to smooth down some of these sharp edges and and uh, remove these these sticking points. And this is a, this is a good thing. And it was interesting. They, they just uh, Saudi and the Qataris are talking about a, a railway now. And so yeah. so the 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 um, the comedy is back. And as in C O M I T Y. I mean, it's a little more a uh, little more. Uh, friendly, and I think it's, it's I think it's significantly more comfortable yeah. for all these states involved to uh, to be de- working in this way uh, in a little more um, you know cooperative manner. Yeah, and and you're right. That rail is long overdue. I mean, oh my goodness. Given oh my goodness. given the um, given the precariousness of logistics in the Gulf, um, you know, the fact that you don't have. Uh, you know, Red Sea ports and even Indian Ocean ports linked to, uh, you know, countries on the Gulf itself. That's 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 just like logistical malpractice. You know, so. it's 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 been coming since 2009. And, you know, they they they, yeah. they 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 recommitted at this at the summit in December. And uh, it'd be nice to see it happen. It's really got I think that they 
8,000 kilometers is what they'd like to do. Mm -hmm. um, they're not, I think they're not yet halfway there. But, you know, they just opened a road. Saudis and Omanis just opened a road, I think, what yeah. was that, yeah. 900 kilometers? Uh, that yeah, that. well, 900 tough kilometers. Yeah, yeah, that, it cut that trip by 13 hours, I gather. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just, yeah, just yeah, so, yeah. So these things, yeah. these, are the, these are the nuts and bolts of, of an economy and society that you, you, you don't just happen, but you got to make happen. So hopefully this, and that, on the rail, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be really significant. Um, yeah. We number five, uh, in 2021, Saudi Arabia seized more than 37 tons of illegal drugs, as well as 190 mm -hmm. million pieces of the highly addictive Captagon pills. The haul included hashish, heroin, cocaine, cot, and other narcotics. In addition, authorities seized more than 234,000 bottles and 4,155 liters of smuggled alcohol. Um, the campaign against drugs came as part of the Zakat Tax and Customs Authority's mission to protect society, support the national economy, and improve international trade, uh, according to a Saudi press agency report. Yeah. So this is a big issue, and this is where I think wastewater monitoring would help. Um, seizures are one example of success. Uh, Captagon is a huge problem. We now know that the Syrian state uh, the Bashar Assad regime finances itself in large part from Captagon, also Hezbollah. Uh, so these are enemies of the Saudi state who do this. And uh, while I don't subscribe to the more lurid novel that you know, they're trying to hollow out society from within, um, it's true that the enemies of the Saudi state are making money from this. Um, but the trade is robust and it will continue. And what we've learned from uh, the expansion of methamphetamine in the United States, which was an emerging issue when I was working narcotics in the Clinton administration, now is just devastating, uh, is that the drugs get cheaper, they get more effective, and, uh, you know, what you're seeing is from the use of this, you get a number of people who have to be removed from the productive part of society at very great expense and taken care of. And, uh, you know, that's... That's a challenge. Um, the authoritarian instincts of the Saudi state have always been there with regard to these substances. Um, perhaps uh, uh, a liberalization on alcohol, which uh, you know was legal in the kingdom until the reign of King Saud, um, would allow them to focus, focus more resources on this. And then I would just urge that they look at back-end monitoring uh, to get a better indication of the prevalence of of narcotics abuse around the kingdom so that they could then shift focuses geographically if they see spikes and things like that. I couldn't possibly add to that. That's that's an excellent, excellent response. Mo data, mo better. <laughs> there you go. And Marcos you know, Arabia coming up. <laughs> as, we, as, as we see, everything returns to wastewater. Yeah, I, I tell you, yeah, it, it, you know, wastewater, I, I, I don't want to get all, you know, call Weber on you, but wastewater really is the, the foundation of a society. Oh, my goodness. You know? <laughs> yeah, you, you do not have a civilization unless you have wastewater and wastewater treatment. <laughs> I'm on, a, I'm on a well here, so yeah. <laughs> if, you were to, if you were to sample my water, you would be able to pinpoint exactly what's in it because of me. So, Well, at, at the moment, it's all cocoa. That's know. right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I just wanted to add that um, cot, it, cot is a very regional drug. Like, it just right. does not exist over here. What is it? Like, I can't really figure out, is it coca leaf or is it like a, is it its own kind of plant? I, 
but it, but it's like a yeah. stimulant sort of like yeah good good question so i never really worked on cot because it it was senior writing in the united states it was a boutique thing amongst somali and yemeni immigrants um and so when it was seized it was but it's it's of the tea family as is cocaine so um and uh the freshness of cot is a big deal so i would it, it it would be a fascinating PhD in economics how, you know, you have Yemen, which is a failed state, you know, racked with civil war, and yet you have a very effective, you know, cot market, which manages to harvest this stuff and deliver it all around the Horn of Africa within a matter of hours because it goes off. And uh, the other thing is when you go around Sana, and I haven't been to Sana since 2011 for obvious reasons um <laughs> you see a number of men walking around you know they have the you know people do wear traditional dress there to include the gambia uh the, the curved knife and you'll see men walking where they just have the scabbard but not the knife and that's because they've pawned the knife for that day's hit mm. and then when they get money or whatever they redeem their gambia uh and put it in for cot so it's it's but it's it's considered to be a mild uh, uh, narcotic, you know, sort of sort of like uh, the way um, uh, people are increasingly using gummies. With uh, uh, that, that's, that's about as close as I can get to it. Incredible. Yeah, it, it would be legalized in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one, gentlemen. We'll put, we'll put a bow on today's conversation with this. The UN Office for the for the coordination of human, humanitarian affairs financial tracking services showed that Saudi Arabia ranked six among the world's most generous donors, providing 3% of global humanitarian aid. In October 2021, the kingdom ranked third among the world's top donors with its share of humanitarian assistance rising to 5%. Saudis are generous. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how little credit they get for that, isn't it? We, oh yeah. boy, you put your finger on it. It's interesting. And I, I've been I've been intrigued by this because they're getting a little better about letting this stuff get out. Because we know the Saudis are generous. Muslims and, you know, the zakat, the habit of zakat, almsgiving, it's part of, you know, one of the five pillars. It's a habit. It's a, it's a, it's a social conscience. Most Muslims have it. And, 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 but, uh, you know, a good Muslim will tell you, you know, bringing attention to the act diminishes the act. Yeah. So, so they don't. They do this because they feel it's their their responsibility as Muslims to do this, and responsibilities as as good human beings. So, yes, the Saudis have been very active and very good donors in, in aid and development. That's what I think for decades. Uh, and as you just said, Dave, nobody's paid attention. It, yeah. It's coming out a little bit more, and I think the Saudis are happy about it. But, you know, the, the Saudis were like, oh, we do this because we think it's right. We don't want to bring attention to it. But come on, somebody say, you know, somebody give us a little, you know, some props. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a, dis there's a dynamic which is unfortunate, and the United States suffers from it as well. You know, we pay, I think, 25% of everything the United Nations does, and a lot of the humanitarian stuff some missions it rises to 40 percent but after a while it's kind of like you know I, I mentioned earlier how saudis view these as our troops they're stationed in the you know american troops stationed <laughs> right. in the kingdom it just gets accepted as the normal baseline and you don't All get right. credit for it um uh you know i don't want to you know teenage father you know oh, you don't do anything for me it's like wait a minute you live in a house you have a car oh, you know. <laughs> um, uh, let me count I, the ways yeah, I, I think there's just a, a sort of universal 
human nature to do that. Um, the other thing that's, that I think is good about Saudi philanthropy is, you know, as we know, in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, a lot of that was funneled into proselytization that wound up not not where we want it. And now it seems to be much more in the humanitarian focus, which I think is reflects uh, good choices made by the Saudi leadership. But yeah, you know, I mean, one of the big questions I've, I've written on this is, is Saudi Arabia ever going to get a fair shake uh, in the West? And because of the system of government, uh, you know, it's 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 going to be a long, hard slog and it's always going to be a hard sell. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, in terms of you look at hip people in the West, first off, they're aligned with the United States. Secondly, it's an authoritarian state. Uh, it's going to be hard to see them getting credit for their good deeds in in the way that they should in absolute terms. I think that's a great question. I think we that's maybe a question that is absolutely a question for another episode. This episode has been terrific. Thank terrific. you, Dave. Anytime. Speaking of generosity, you've been very generous with your time, Dave. So oh, you, you only got to pull Chatty Cathy's string once, boys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, we talked about wastewater. You know, that's the key. And uh, and Patriot missiles, two of my favorite subjects. And beating no, up they, on soccer, too, which is yeah, exactly, fun. Exactly. Really we, got, we got to rant. Right. Um, yeah. that was, Dave, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor.